Hello, and welcome to Walking with the Tengu, a podcast exploring classic texts for the modern martial artist. Last time we talked a little about the development of Greek combative traditions and the impact of Homeric tradition on the perceptions of what was honorable to the Greek warrior's mind, as well as how some of this has come down to us, specifically last time in the ideals of no man left behind. Today we're going to dig into something we briefly mentioned in the last episode, which is the shift from honorable combat being perceived, or at least imagined, as one-on-one combat to determine who was best, to a battlefield array tactic known as the phalanx. The phalanx was a group of warriors called hoplites wearing heavy armor tightly packed together. Shields often overlapped, with spears poking out, helmets on their heads, and greaves on their legs. The men were close together, shoulder to shoulder. The strength of the formation built on the solidarity of the group. If anyone lost their courage and turned to flee or broke ranks, everyone else in the formation was put in danger. This was very different from the style of fighting that we saw in the Iliad. While warriors in the past fought on their own in the chaos of the melee, it's likely that over time survivors saw that having someone watching your back or flank made a difference to one's survival. These momentary concentrations of warriors may have grown into something more formal, the formation we know as the phalanx. The Greeks even had technical terms for how hoplites operated within the phalanx, othysmos being a mass-forward motion and the trope, the mass retreat. This point of retreat was a clear line on the organized, almost ritual form of combat practiced by the Greeks, and it was here at the point of trope that the winner would erect the monument of captured armor, which is where we get our word trophy. The connection to sports doesn't end there, though. For the ideal combat to the Greek hoplite was very similar in spirit to a modern sports event. Battle was generally conducted fairly and openly on a flat plane, and subterfuge was rare. Rules were agreed on, holidays and sacred places were respected, battles were begun by mutual agreement. It was all very formal, ritualized, and respectable. The battle formations were drawn up, first one side and then the other in response. The othysmos, the mass push forward, was initiated, the competitive struggle begun, and then at some point the trope occurred, the mass retreat. Pursuit was often short. The Spartans even made a point of not chasing those in flight very far. The winners stayed on the battlefield, until the losers admitted defeat by sending a messenger to request the right to recover their dead. A truce was called, and the winners constructed their trophy monument out of the armor of the slain enemy. By our standards, all very neat and clean and formal. There was little need for planning, strategy, or even taking into account the weather or terrain. The the, uh, formality of it all was even commented on by Herodotus, who wrote one of his Persian characters as saying, When they declare war upon each other, they seek out the fairest and the flattest patch of ground, and there they set on and fight. As a result, the winners suffer great hurt, and of the losers, there is nothing to say, for they are quite destroyed. The Greeks certainly had some sense of how odd their method of fighting was. This same Persian character of Herodotus later concludes, Each should seek out the place where they'd be most difficult to subdue, and try their chances there. They, the Greeks, can be seen even here wondering why they would sacrifice tactical advantage for a so-called fair fight. 
War, of course, changed over the centuries. Like I mentioned earlier, there's evidence of the more chaotic battlefield of lightly armored warriors with throwing weapons moving quickly alongside heavier armored hoplites. Chariots certainly had a place immortalized in the Greek epics. However, somewhere around the 5th century BC, the phalanx had become a fixture, and the light warriors with javelins and stones fought separately. The richest, as was the case in much of the world, fought from horseback. Yet, by this time, even the aristocrats who rode to battle on their expensive horses got down and fought as hoplites when it came time to battle. In Sparta, their kings too fought in formation, with the victors of their Olympics standing in front of them. For a time, historians interpreted the cooperation in the phalanx as representative of the rise of democracy in Greece, and yeah, it makes a kind of sense. For there to be a functioning phalanx or democracy, an ethic of cooperation must exist. Aristotle wrote in his work called Politics, The first type of constitution in Greece after the age of the kings was founded upon warriors, originally upon cavalry. For cavalry was strong and predominant in war, because hoplites are useless without formation. And in the old days, knowledge about formations and the formations themselves did not exist. But as cities grew and hoplites became stronger, more people began to have a share in government. End quote. And yes, certainly the hoplites did have a cooperative ethic. In ancient Greek, the term for a loyal companion was perispistus, which was originally the term for a soldier who carried his shield beside you in the line. It is also recorded that a part of the Athenian oath during military training was, I will not desert the man beside me wherever I may be stationed. Despite all this, though, the men who stood in that line still thought of what they were doing in terms of the heroes of Homer. Poetry and gravestones through this time continued to draw on the works of Homer to describe the heroic in terms of being the best at something. When we think of the depiction of hoplites on Greek pottery, we don't often see a phalanx. We see a hoplite fighting as an individual. There was even a return to forging spearheads out of bronze during the 6th century BC, despite the sharper and lighter iron spearhead having been available for centuries. What was this obsession with the heroes of the mythic past? such that it even impacted combat and battlefield behavior in their own present time. Despite the phalanx seeming to be unheroic in terms of Homeric battlefield virtue, we still find the people who were hoplites thinking in terms of individual competition. Lists were made of the bravest and sometimes of the second and third most brave. When reading classical Greek works, one can still find careful descriptions of who the author thought was the most brave, Greek cities would give awards to those judged to be the most brave. Socrates at one point lost to a man named Alcibiades in the Battle of Potidea in 432 BC. We shouldn't think of these awards in the same sense that we do today for military decorations. There was no abstract standard, but a concrete competitive standard. Just being brave wasn't noteworthy. Being the bravest, now that was something worth being noticed for. So, if hoplites thought of battle in terms of competition, how did they come to fight cramped together in a phalanx formation? This wasn't a place where Homeric battlefield virtues could shine, and one could be seen as the best at something. We can begin to understand this when we consider the need to reconcile the practical needs of combat with the idealized competitiveness of the Greeks. The chaos of battle was unpredictable, and unlike the Iliad, some no-name soldier could accidentally kill a warrior of great renown and high standing. 
A shower of arrows could fell a brave general, and no one would know who had won the competition. In the chaos of blood, screams, and the dying, the brave deeds one did would go unnoticed and be missed. The survivors would come out with the same kind of remorse that we still see today, survivor's remorse, deep down knowing that the only reason we survived was luck, and not because we won the bravery competition. The cowardly and the brave both died the same in the chaos of the battlefield, and honor had no real place. No awards for bravery could be given with any certainty, and no shame accorded the cowardly. The fact of the matter is that the idea of Homeric combat was revealed for the fantasy that it was. It wouldn't make a very good competition. Whereas you might be thinking it's time to reject the competitiveness of the individual on the battlefield for some reality-based combative expectations, instead the Greeks just doubled down on their ideology and started making rules around how to fight that ensured their ethos could be maintained. There's even talk of a supposed rule that banned the use of arrows, javelins, and other missile weapons. Though, whether this really happened or just ended up being a useful precedent set far enough back that no one remembered whether it really happened or not, is unknown. The problem with archery from a Greek mindset was that it was unfair in a competitive setting. Euripides, in Heracles, wrote a debate comparing the merits of archery with the hoplite style of fighting, making it clear that the use of a bow was not a real test of courage. Though early writings granted archery its own value of Homeric martial virtue, those days were now gone. Consider, too, that despite its inclusion today, archery never became an Olympic event in ancient Greece. If you wanted to fight a battle that was a competition, it helped to have everyone competing in the same event. And despite practicality, we see archers and other missiles removed from the battlefield. All this so they could see who embodied courage the best. I think most of us would say that courage is an important trait to embody as martial artists. Whether you're stepping out onto a tournament mat to face a competition opponent, or firing your rifle at an enemy who just killed your buddy next to you, courage is what defines the warrior from the coward. The willingness to move towards danger and risk serious injury or death, even when one is gripped in fear. In the 5th century, Euripides identifies courage as, quote, standing fast, staring at the rushing line of spears, and holding one's place in the ranks. In the 4th century, Plato defines it as, whoever is willing to fight the enemy, staying in his rank, and does not flee, he, certainly, is courageous. In both these quotes, we see that the courage of holding the line was the standard by which the Greeks reconciled the inability to recreate the Homeric battlefield virtues in the chaos of real combat. By restricting combat down to the competition of the organized formation of the phalanx, it was possible to see who was the first to flee, who held on the longest, who was knocked down and stood up again, and who died holding their place. Finally, the Homeric ideals of being the best at something could be realized in the courage of the hoplite in formation. The one standard we see across the ages and cultures of the world as a test of bravery is the proximity of death. Whether we're speaking about the duels of Tokugawa Japan, a 19th century European duel, or an ancient Greek hoplite, the test of bravery is facing death and standing firm, resolute, holding one's position and not running away. We live in a very different world today. We have our own epics and sagas. The stories and myths that inspire us still speak deep down to us in a similar way that Homer did for the Greeks. Our own values and perceptions of honor may differ from the Greeks in a variety of ways, 
Sure, we can all appreciate a tactical retreat, living to fight another day. Our method of combat is different. Yet we also share quite a bit with them still. Abandoning your comrades, leaving the person next to you to die as you run away, isn't a trait that is exemplified as worthy in any cultures I'm aware of. The ability for any of us to exemplify courage and bravery today is limited. We live such safe and danger-free lives that facing violence is no longer the most likely opportunity for you and I to demonstrate our courage in the face of fear. This Greek obsession with competition, though, may hold a key to how we can encourage virtues such as courage in our own society. To strive to be the best at something can be a strong motivator and can push both adults and children to achieve in areas they wouldn't normally. The dangers of a society that gives out participation trophies is one that looks to castrate all the value that comes not only from striving hard to be the best, but also the lessons of defeat. In classical Greek history, we see warriors who strive harder to earn back a good name after having been found wanting in some area of bravery. Likewise, some healthy competition can spur us on to newer and greater heights of achievement after we've experienced a loss. I would encourage you to seek out opportunities to test your courage even today. This might just be in talking to someone new, having that conversation with a family member you've been dreading, or even just enrolling in a tournament or a competition for your martial art. None of these things are necessary, but I would argue that testing yourself is a key component of growth no matter which martial art you practice. I'll leave you with a quote from the Ming-era Chinese general Qi Jiguang, who said somewhere around the year 1560 AD, If you have acquired some skill, you must test it on an opponent. Do not be proud of a win or ashamed at a loss. Instead, think, why did I win? Or, why did I lose? Then train more and test yourself again. So, thank you for listening. Please share these episodes if you found them useful in some way. Talk about these ideas with your training partners, but always remember, first and foremost, the words of the Stoic philosopher Epictetus to embody your philosophy. You can find us online at walkingtengu.wix, that's W-I-X dot com slash tengu, or email me at walkingwiththetengu, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can message me through any of our social media sites. Keep walking through the mountains and keep your eyes open for the tengu.